Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Happy New Year's Eve to everyone. I hope you're wearing sparkles and donning your party hats and doing something fun this evening. Drinking champagne, perhaps. Or sparkling grape juice or whatever tickles your fancy slash nose when you drink it. I, myself, uh, I'm not really big on New Year's. No? I, I think the pressure is is too high for this holiday. I, I find it stressful. I would rather just... I know it's an excuse to party, and yes, I will find a party, but I would rather just like have a low-key night of hanging out rather than trying to go somewhere where I do have to wear sequins. <sighs> There's also a lot of pressure to like tell yourself and everyone around you that you're going to somehow make yourself better. Oh, yeah. It's the fresh start. Yeah. And it's not just in the U.S. This is a cross-cultural thing. People love New Year's because it gives us a chance, at least mentally, to say, okay, you know what? Last year, I did some things, whatever, but I can, <laughs> I can be... I can be a new person this year. I can resolve to make myself better. Do you have do you do you make New Year's resolutions, Caroline? I do not. I used to uh, when I was a naive person who believed that by simply saying I will start running, I would start running, and that consistently did not happen. So I was like, you know what? Instead of just disappointing myself every January third, <laughs> I am just going to try to make slow lifestyle changes here and there and not worry about promising something on January 1st. Well, as we will get into more in the podcast, Caroline, you are really on the right track when it comes to finally when it comes to these resolutions. Um, But first, before we get into whether or not resolutions really work and when they do, because I have known people who will set out with some kind of large goal, like uh, quitting smoking or having a healthier lifestyle, losing weight, and they actually stick to it and they do it. Um, so we'll talk about the ways that uh, people can succeed in those kinds of things. But USA.gov, just for fun, has tracked the kinds of things, the most common things, at least, that Americans resolve to do. And they're pretty e- easy to, to guess. Less boozing, less using. No, <laughs> should I keep rhyming? Uh, eating healthier food, getting a better education, better job, getting fit, managing debt, which I'm sure is a big one. I think money matters in general are a big one for people. Um, quitting smoking, taking trips, volunteering, saving money, basically becoming perfect human beings. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I do better with some of those things. I, it's all in cycles. Oh, like, yeah. sometimes I'm really good at saving money because I just get in the mindset of like, no, dummy, you can't go to the mall every day. That's just ridiculous. Who does that? And so I, I become really good at, you know, eating at home instead of eating out and doing all that stuff. But I, I, sometimes you can't be good all the time. No, you need to allow yourself some indulgences. Yeah. Absolutely. But uh, one interesting thing, though, about New Year's resolutions is just 
how long we've been making them. I suspected that it was more of a modern cultural invention, that New Year's resolutions are this huge thing that everybody has to do. But no, in fact, uh, this is coming from The Book of Christmas by Jane Struthers. Uh, She talks about the history of resolution making and how ancient Romans and Babylonians would make resolutions at the start of the year. And Babylonians specifically, promised to repay debts and return borrowed objects. And this was also popular among, not surprisingly, much later in history, the Puritans. I like the Babylonian resolutions. Well, they're not really resolutions, but just like, I'm going to give back what's owed. Yeah. That that seems like it's an easier, more noble goal than I'm going to start eating fewer cheesy poofs. Although that's pretty noble too. If you yeah. can accomplish it. It's, it's true. Um, but it's even still though, uh, these days, I'd say there's a lot of cynicism towards resolutions, even though it's something that it's, it's a strange part of almost human nature, it seems like, mm-hmm. considering how long we've been doing this. But it's also been accompanied by this growing acknowledgement that maybe resolutions are, just empty gestures that we make to make ourselves feel better at the beginning of the year. Uh, for instance, uh, Struthers quotes Mark Twain, who once said, uh, New Year's Day uh, is now the accepted time to make your regular annual good resolutions. Next week, you can begin paving hell with them as usual. <laughs> oh, Samuel Clemens. Some people last longer than a week. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Oscar Wilde also was skeptical. He said, good resolutions are simply checks that men draw on a bank where they have no account. And the thing is, uh, Mark Twain and Oscar Wilde were not off the mark in terms of being dubious that Mm -hmm. people will actually stick to their resolutions. So there were two studies by John Norcross of the University of Scranton back in 1989. John John Norcross has actually focused a lot on resolutions, willpower, all that stuff. And he found that 77% of people maintain their resolutions for one week. So there you go. One week. That, hey, that's pretty good. Good job. Only 19% maintain for the full two years that they followed people. But I still think that's pretty good. Almost 20% of people holding on to their resolutions for two years? Yeah, although, I mean, it, we, we don't have details on what precisely those resolutions were. Um, and I also really liked the name of this study. It was called The Resolution Solution Longitudinal Examination of New Year's Change Attempts. I love academia sometimes. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, among those 200 people that Norcross tracked, a little bit over half of them experienced at least one slip-up. And those slip-ups would be precipitated by self-reported lack of personal control, excessive stress, which is something to keep in mind as we talk about resolutions, and negative emotions. And even though um, those studies are a little bit dated, there the, the numbers still apply today for the most part. It's not like we've gotten any better, really, at keeping resolutions in the intervening years. Um, John Tierney over at the New York Times recently looked at statistics on uh, how how good we are these days at keeping resolutions and forewarned that, sorry to say this folks, a third of people will have broken their resolutions by January and half of us will just give up by July. But that still leaves 50%? Yeah. After July. Um, and one of the reasons why we tend to give up, um, has to do with 
us finding ourselves, or at least thinking ourselves, too busy, perhaps, to really put the effort to dig in and make the sacrifices. Um, also in the New York Times, Tara Parker Pope reported on a 2007 survey by time management firm Franklin Covey that polled 15,000 customers, uh, and they found that nearly 40% attributed breaking their resolutions to having too many other things to do, and then 33% were just, I would say, probably a little more honest and said they just weren't as committed to the resolutions as they were when the clock struck midnight. Yeah. Well, it's hard. It's hard to go from being a couch sitter day in and day out to being like, no, I'm going to train for a marathon. I right. mean, that's that's a major step. And to just decide automatically that you're going to do that, like maybe get an app, like the Couch to the 5K app right. or something like that. Like, take it in steps. It is. It can be so overwhelming. I know you know what I'm talking about. It can be so overwhelming to be like, I'm just going to make a, la- a radical life change. Right. Just because it's New Year's. Yeah, and we don't think about uh, the incremental steps needed to get to that place of actually having a resolution that works. Yeah. Um, so speaking of, of resolutions working, you, you do really have to be committed. And so, you know, Kristen cited the 33% who said they simply just weren't committed. They didn't feel like, you know, following through on whatever promise they made. And, uh, Kimberly Moffat, who's a psychotherapist quoted, uh, in the Huffington Post said that New Year's resolutions only work in very few cases and typically with those who have a will of steel. And this gets into the whole, like willpower issues, like strength of will, what makes people commit. And so it, it can be really hard to commit. This is a, another John Norcross study. We mentioned him earlier. This one uh, in 2002, he found that by the end of January, 36% had already broken their resolutions. Like we said, it can be overwhelming. And it really is overwhelming if we're faced with too many tasks. So not only are we like going back to work, we're getting over the holidays, we're trying to clean up after all the relatives have been in the house, and we want to start training for a marathon. It can just be a lot to handle. Yeah, and uh, Michael Bader, who is a senior advisor for the Institute for Change, also says that uh, resolutions don't work because we have an unconscious resolution to not change. Basically, he, he thinks that our bad behaviors serve unconscious beliefs and needs that are the building blocks of our identities. So he gives an example of an overeater who's unsuccessful at dieting because binging provides momentary relief from feelings of loneliness and or anxiety. But, I mean, the thing is, though, because he also goes on to say, like, this has nothing to do with heredity or neurobiology. You know, it's just these these unconscious parts of who we are. We can't divorce ourselves from them. But it sounds like that's just not getting at the real root of the problem and shrugging off, you know, oh, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to change, really. Yeah. I'm just going to... Like, I don't feel like cheesy poofs are a cornerstone of my identity. I just really like them. That's all. Like, I, could, I don't think that giving up cheesy poofs will reveal anything that's, like, deep-seated in my brain. But what does the poof represent, Caroline? Happiness. Oh, oh, there it is. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, another reason is that we really don't want to do them. According yeah. to, uh, this is, uh, Steve Airy, who's a negative Nancy confidence coach quoted over at Lifehacker. He said that this is because resolutions are really about what we should do rather than what we want to do. So it's like doing your homework instead of playing video games. You know, it's like, it's what you should do to better yourself, but do you really 
feel like you want to do it. And then he goes on to explain that they're like goals, but he said that this is a negative, which I kind of take issue with and I think is weird. So he says that resolutions are like goals, which puts a gap between where you are now and where you want to be. And I don't think that's inherently negative. I think if you see a goal that you want to go for, whether that's getting a new job or losing weight, you should go for it. But anyway, Mm -hmm. he says that making resolutions make you look at what's next, not what's right in front of you. And they make you feel less than lowering your self-esteem, which I think I, I feel like he's getting it backwards. I don't know about you. I mean, I could see that coming into effect if you set yourself up for cycles of defeat where mm-hmm. you continually set goals and then that are too ambitious right. and then you don't meet up to them. And then that would probably ding your self-esteem and, uh, you know, lower you rather than propel you forward because it seems like resolution should be more of a motivational Factor. I think it's more something that uh, Christy Hedges, who's a leadership coach um, and quoted over at Forbes, talked about the fact that we set too lofty of goals. It's like this all or nothing thing. I'm going to become, you know, I'm going to sculpt my body so much so that when I go to the beach, people will ask to take my photo. And that's not going to it's not going to happen with, you know, one Zumba class a week or whatever it is. (laughs) That we think um, can do it. And so when we don't hit this transformational point in a short amount of time, then we just throw the whole throw the whole thing out. Yeah. Well, she also says that culturally we're all pretty cynical and that we live up to our low expectations because we're setting these incredible goals that we don't honestly expect to meet. And so it's that much easier to just be like, whatever, I'm not going to go run anymore or I'm not going to do X, Y, Z anymore because I never really expected that I'd, you know, succeed anyway. I also like how she refers to this as the cynical zeitgeist, which supports the gravitational pull of the status quo. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. Hedges. <laughs> cynical zeitgeist. Everybody's a Daria. Um, but there is some science, though, to resolutions and more specifically to the willpower that it takes to change things. Because I think that resolutions can be a very good thing. I think that we're just going about them oftentimes the wrong way. But when you figure out how willpower works in the brain, maybe we are arming ourselves with some, uh, some information to help us succeed because Sticking to resolutions, i.e. willpower, takes actual energy. Yeah. So it turns out that when you run out of willpower, you're running out of energy, like Kristen said, that is powered by glucose in the bloodstream, which Roy F. Baumeister, a social psychologist, calls ego depletion. He points out that you really have to anticipate the limits of your willpower. And what is it? about willpower. Why does it run out? What's going on? Well, one of the reasons why it runs out is because all of the research into into ego depletion, into willpower, um, finds that we don't really have very much of it. Willpower is a very fleeting thing. Humans like to give in to their indulgences. And um, if we don't exercise it, much like a muscle, we, we aren't going to be able to, to, to use it very much. Um, and this was something that, uh, Jonah Lair, who, before I can hear eyebrows raising, 
think right now. I realize he is uh, running into some issues lately with some citations. But nevertheless, he wrote uh, he did write a fascinating piece over at Wired a while ago um, called The Willpower Trick. And I just wanted to call out some of these um, studies that he highlighted. Uh, he talks about behavioral economist Baba Shiv, who asked two separate groups to memorize either a two-digit or a seven-digit number. And later on, those two groups were um, tasked with choosing between a piece of chocolate cake or a fruit bowl, knowing that the fruit would be a healthier option. And he found, Shiv found, that the people who had to memorize the seven-digit number were much more likely to just give in to the temptation and eat a piece of chocolate cake because, Shiv surmised, their brains were more taxed. Those blood glucose levels were lower, and hence they had more ego depletion. Yeah, and this is the same thing. You get home from work all day, you've probably exercised willpower, not just in avoiding the dessert tray at lunch, maybe, but also, like, not cursing all day at work. You've exercised willpower to not be your usual jerk self. You get home at night, your brain is tired, and you're like, okay, I could grill a chicken breast, or I could just eat this whole macaroni and cheese plate from the grocery store. I love cheese. Is this a theme? I think this is a theme. I think it's a theme, but I like it. Um, But going more into the research, back in the 1960s, uh, there's a a famous experiment uh, by a guy named Walter Mischel, who wanted to test whether or not kids could hold out for treats, basically looking at willpower in childhood. And uh, he identified among the kids who were able to hold out, he identified something he called strategic allocation of attention, in which they literally distracted themselves from the, I think it was a marshmallow mm-hmm. or some kind of chocolate treat on the table, that it was sitting there. Um, yeah, because he told them that they could either eat the marshmallow now mm-hmm. or wait until the researcher comes back in the room and then they get two marshmallows. Yeah. And all of the kids who just sat there and stared at the marshmallow and tried to wait it out had much more trouble and would usually just gobble up the marshmallow. But the kids who would cover their eyes so they couldn't see it, they would sing songs to themselves, actually hide underneath the table. That's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially blocking that temptation stimulus from view were able to hold out the longest. And so that's um, one thing that researchers have learned about willpower is the fact that those of us who might seem to have the most actually have to exercise it the least mm-hmm. because we sidestep temptation by just keeping those things out of out of our view. Like if yeah. if you your you know pitfall is say chocolate or cigarettes or alcohol, you don't have chocolate or cigarettes or alcohol anywhere. You know, it's like if you're an alcoholic, you're not going to go to a bar. Yeah. I read there was one commenter on the Wired article. The guy said that he kept his pack of cigarettes. He would only let himself buy one pack at a time and he would keep it in the backseat of his car. So every time he wanted to smoke, he would have to go out, get his keys, go outside, get the pack of cigarettes, get one cigarette because he would only let himself take one cigarette at a time Mm -hmm. and then smoke it. And so that cut way down on just like the boredom smoking. Right. And he actually ended up cutting way down in general. And I'm like, well, 
Am I going to have to keep all of my chocolate in my car? You got to keep the cheesy poofs in the trunk, Caroline. <laughs> I have a hatch. I can so easily get to it. Um, yeah, but that's the whole thing, too. I don't keep ice cream in the house. I don't go down the ice cream aisle at the grocery store. Like, if I super duper want ice cream, it means that I have to either go to the grocery store and get it or just, like, stop by the ice cream parlor on the way home, which it's just so much of a hassle. Who wants to do that? Well, and the only thing, though, about this kind of research is that it definitely gives us more insight into eliminating problem behaviors, but not so much into activating positive ones in terms of exercising, going to those Zumba classes. (laughs) Um, I can't keep up. Uh, yeah, I, I would, I've never taken a Zumba class, but I have a feeling I would, I, I don't know. I got, I got two left feet, folks. Um, or, you know, like learning a new language or going on trips, those kind of volunteering, those kinds of things that require more time. But again, it seems like no matter what the big lesson is, you got to start small. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. Small steps are best. This was stressed in an LA Times article in December 2011. Take short walks at work, things like that, things that can add up to small successes that can add up to a better feeling of self-control, self-esteem, like thinking, okay, that wasn't hard. Getting up at 3.30 when you're just like head on your desk, getting up and just taking a walk around your floor or around your building or whatever, that eventually leads you to be like, okay, well, maybe then I can run a mile on the treadmill instead when I get home, Mm -hmm. you know, adding up to bigger and bigger things. And same with same with food. Um, it's the whole, like, if you're drastically cutting everything out, like, okay, well, I'm going to go from eating, like, a normal average American diet to lettuce. I'm going to eat nothing but lettuce and tomatoes. Yeah. A, that's not a balanced diet. Yeah. Yeah, you need some frosted flakes in there. And also remember that uh, those glucose levels, too, I mean, that has a big thing to do with the food. Like, people need to, to eat to be healthy to keep those glucose yeah, that's why levels up. Yeah, that's why your crash diets are not going to work. That's why it has mm-hmm. to be a lifestyle change. And Kimberly Moffat, who we referenced earlier, said, in reference to food in particular, think of what you're adding instead of what you're taking away. This is something I've actually told my mother, who refuses to... <laughs> I don't know, refuses to cut back in some areas and add in others. I'm like, don't think of it as dieting. This isn't like your Nutrisystem. This isn't your uh, eating rice cakes and being sad. This is just trying to add fruits and vegetables, maybe take away a little bacon. I know. God, who wants to take away bacon? I don't know. Nobody. Vegetarians. But yeah, and and people uh, recommend that you don't spread yourself thin in addition to this. You want to set a single clear goal because as we mentioned earlier being overwhelmed with tasks and have to's and must do's it just gets to be too much and you won't stick to it yeah and on that same note i think this is really important don't overreact if you have a lapse lapses happen if you skip a day of running if you eat that hamburger enjoy it enjoy the relaxation that you take from you know, not exercising one day, enjoy the satiation from that burger or whatever food it is that, that delights you so much. And then, you know, and, and keep going. Don't expect yourself to be completely perfect right off the bat or yeah. really ever. <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, don't think that that burger or that day off from running means your entire diet or exercise regimen or whatever is off track. Mm-hmm. You've, that's just one, one day, one burger, one whatever. 
bag or bag of cheesy poos. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. But just that just means that the next day you're back at it. Right. Um, and we have not touched on gender at all in this podcast, but this this whole thing about willpower and managing stress and keeping your energy levels up is especially pertinent to women because the American Psychological Association uh, did a pretty in-depth survey not too long ago on gender stress and sticking to resolutions and willpower and found that women may have a harder time sticking to goals like these than men do. And I wonder if off the bat, and I wasn't able to find any statistics on this. I wonder if just from the get-go, women um, might set more resolutions and perhaps more unrealistic resolutions. And I only say that because I feel like as soon as the holidays are over, the messages that we are immediately inundated with are swimsuit seasons around the corner, ladies. Yeah, drop those last five pounds. Shed all that turkey weight. <laughs> I'm going to give birth to a turkey. Um, yeah, it turns out in the study that both genders do cite lack of willpower as the number one barrier to change. But women are more likely than men to cite the lack of willpower as a barrier, preventing them from making the lifestyle changes recommended by a doctor. And so that's 34% women versus 24% men. Yeah, and women are also far more likely than men to report that a lack of willpower has prevented them from changing eating habits. Um, when asked what they needed to change in order for their willpower to improve, women were more likely than men to say less fatigue and more confidence in their ability to improve their willpower. And also six times as many women uh, say that having more help with household chores would allow them to improve their willpower. And this was something that I was thinking about in terms of you know, what it takes to set a resolution and really keep to it and make a lifestyle change. And as a single woman with no kids, like being as autonomous as I will ever be probably in my life, um, that I, I could see that happening. I could say, oh, I could, you know, I could, I could do these kinds of things. Toss a kid in the mix. I don't know, you know, cause that's, uh, that increases your stress level that, and I'm not blaming kids for things. I'm just saying that I can understand yeah. how having a partner, having a household to take care of, having children, even pets, um, <laughs> I'm pet free, <laughs> uh, all of that can impact this brain space that it takes to really set yourself up for success. And it also speaks to, I mean, not to to, to be uh, kind of ch- cliche about it, but it also speaks to the importance of, you know, establishing healthy lifestyles from the get-go, if yeah. possible. And maybe just using your child uh, as a bench press. Just bench press your child. Incorporate, if the child is taking up so much of your time. Incorporate the child into your exercise regimen. <laughs> well, no, that is one of the... Do bicep curls with the child? There you go. If you got twin babies, <laughs> um, obviously on a padded surface, JIC. <laughs> um, no, but one of, the, one of the tips was just play with your kids because that knocks out increased family time and also gives you a little bit of exercise. Yeah. So... Here, we're here to help. Yeah. That's all we're doing. Yeah. And I do think that um, uh, the the fact that there are so many apps out there, too, especially for people who want to start exercising more that will give you reminders, keeping some kind of accountability, something that's often cited as well as a good thing to do. So this this sounds like 
if I want to get back in the resolution game, yeah, I should make a resolution along the lines of get moving a little bit every day. Yeah. So instead, going from nothing, going from walking from my car to my apartment, take a walk at three o'clock. When I'm starting to feel tired at work. Yeah, it's the whole thing about taking the stairs instead of the elevator mm-hmm. one day at a time. Like for, for me, uh, like I want to save money this year. And instead of what I've done in the past of saying by the end of this year, I want to have a million dollars. That's right. not going to happen. There's no way. Uh, actually saying, okay, each week, you yeah. know, breaking it down. Well, I've also, in terms of money, like I've also set an amount every month that I'm going to put in savings and never touch again because I actually am working towards a goal of buying a car. Mm -hmm. Like I have to get rid of my old, dying, noisy car. And so I just have to be disciplined about that. But I do still let myself go out. Sure. Have a drink, have a hamburger, go see friends, that kind of thing. I don't completely deprive myself of any social interaction that involves leaving the house because I would go insane and then I would money binge and buy all of the shoes. Mm -hmm. Don't buy all of the shoes. No. So New Year's resolutions, do they work? Oftentimes, no, but it's just because, well, not just because, but I would say largely because we go about them the wrong way. Yeah, it's it's almost sort of a desperation move. Like, oh my God, I was not responsible with fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. And I need to suddenly backtrack and reverse however many months of damage. Whereas it might seem hard, but in the long run, it's easier to make that lifestyle change and be kind to yourself. Yeah, that's a good message. Be kind to yourself in 2013. Yeah. And Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Let us know if you have New Year's resolutions... Very curious to hear all of them. I know we kind of used uh, exercise and eating well and all of that as our go-to resolutions, but I'm very curious to know what folks are trying to to change this year. So uh, send us an email if you'd like mom stuff at discovery.com, or of course you can always go over to Facebook and start a conversation over there. Uh, and we've got a couple letters to share, but before we do, I've got a quick word. Alrighty, here's a letter from Asa. She's this is about our femphobia episode. She said that it definitely struck a nerve with her. I am a woman in a quite male-dominant profession. I am a new assistant professor in engineering. I also like to dress in a very feminine way. I almost always wear skirts and any heels I can tolerate and love makeup. It makes me feel better and more confident. That said, I have noticed people get surprised at my credentials and competence throughout my career from college with a very high GPA, grad school, a couple years in the industry where it was by far the most prevalent, and now in academia. When I was younger, my mom would tell me that I should not dress in such a feminine way. It wasn't because she thought it was not a feminist thing to do, I guess, but she thought, maybe knew, that it would make things harder for me. She would tell me that I should appear not as a woman in a sexual sense, but as a quote-unquote sister to be listened to and also to avoid being harassed. Being a professional, that was the road she took. For me, however, that was not acceptable. I decided that I am not willing to change an important part of who I am just so men can get over their preconceptions. And to this day, I feel the same way. Is it sometimes a problem? Yes, it is sometimes difficult to be taken seriously, especially by older male engineers. It is also quite amusing to see people's reaction to a woman in heels and a pencil skirt holding hand tools or rolling along large pieces of equipment. But it is who I am, and I am not willing to change it because of other people's preconceptions. So thank you, Asa. 
Well, I've got one here from Justin, and this is in response to our episode on gender and trolling, which featured Jonathan Strickland, co-host of the Tech Stuff podcast. And he writes... I would just like to give my thoughts about the topic of trolls. I'm an avid YouTube watcher, and when I was younger, 13 or 14 years old, YouTube was in its early days, and I admit to being a troll back then. I wouldn't say as mean or sexist things as I've seen these days, but I can assure you my comments were not nice. As I've matured, I've realized what I was doing and stopped. I still regularly watch YouTube videos and stick to only posting positive or humorous comments at no one's expense. I still regularly see trolls and have done some independent and unofficial research of my own about trolls for the last couple of months. Every time I watch a YouTube video and see a troll-like comment, I click on the user's page to get a little more information of what a regular troll looks like. Uh, he, was, he goes on to talk about uh, there is a news group called SourceFed on YouTube, hugely popular, hugely successful. There are three female hosts on that show, and I can almost guarantee you that the comments on any of those videos with them, especially with the one named Trisha Hirschberger, will be filled with sexist remarks. I always see comments and top comments that refer to their breasts and other objectifying remarks. Why? Because those comments seem always to be top comments, which only further encourages those remarks. YouTube has helped by allowing YouTubers to mark troll-like comments as spam, and YouTube will hide the comment. Uh, besides that, I'm not sure how else YouTube has cracked down on trolls. They need to start warning and deleting accounts if they haven't done so already. Like if your comments have been flagged as spam over five times, YouTube should have the right to remove the account. So, thanks to Justin for his insight on trolling and to everyone who's written into MomStuffAtDiscovery.com. Again, you can find us on Facebook, like us over there, and follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Check out our Tumblr blog. It's StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And if you resolve to get smarter for 2013, I know the place you should go. It's our website, HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 